The famous Vincent van Gogh was a post-impressionist painter who was born in Zundert, Netherlands, and lived between the years of 1853 and 1890. During his life, however, Van Gogh became known for his severe bouts of depression, including periods of psychosis that saw him committed to mental institutions on numerous occasions. In one of Van Gogh's most famous acts of insanity, he severed his left ear with a knife in a rage while arguing with his artist friend. Van Gogh was also known to neglect his physical health, eat poorly, and drink and smoke heavily. Often unable to support himself monetarily, he relied on his family, especially his brother, Theo. While he is known for roughly 2,100 pieces of work, the vast majority of these were created in the last two years of his life as his mental and physical health continued to deteriorate. He was also considered a commercial failure while alive, eventually committing suicide by shooting himself in the chest at age 37. Easily one of the most instantly recognizable artists in history, Van Gogh's paintings have gone on to command some of the highest prices for paintings ever sold since his death in 1890. His legacy has also fueled what is known as the romantic idea of the tortured artist, or the artist whose creativity is somehow counterbalanced with madness in different forms such as mania, depression, psychosis, and suicidal ideation. Van Gogh's legacy of the tortured artist has lived on to include many others, including famous artists like American writer Sylvia Plath, Norwegian painter Edvard Munch, Impressionist painter Edgar Degas, American abstract expressionist painter Mark Rothko, American artist Georgia O'Keeffe, and even Italian Renaissance artist Michelangelo. Other famous artists who were suspected of various forms of mental illness include American writers such as Ernest Hemingway and Edgar Allan Poe, American abstract expressionist painter Jackson Pollock, Swiss surrealist artist H.R. Geiger, and American beat writer Jack Kerouac, to name a few. While many artists have been known to live eccentric and often extreme lifestyles, there continues to be a debate about the connection between mental illness and its many forms and the kind of creativity needed for groundbreaking artistic expression. Some psychologists argue that mental health conditions like bipolar disorder lend themselves to the unique ways in which talented artists view the world and the novel ways they may express themselves. Others argue that the pursuit of art and the creative process tend to attract this type as they search for meaning in their lives and work. Regardless of how mental illness and creativity are linked, the idea has become ingrained in the collective mythology of artists and that of creative expression. American writer Sylvia Plath seemed to be preoccupied with suicide and plagued with depression for most of her life, being treated with electroconvulsive therapy on several occasions. She tried to commit suicide by an overdose of pills in 1953 and deliberately ran her car off of a road in 1962. On a February morning in 1963, a nurse caretaker arrived at Plath's house to help her manage her depression and the care of her children. Finding that she could not enter the house as usual, the nurse recruited help from a workman and forced her way into the apartment. The nurse and the worker were shocked to find Plath dead, her head shoved into the oven. Plath had also taken the time to prepare the house for the act, taping off her children's rooms so they would not breathe the effects of the oven gas. Sylvia Plath, who was known for her confessional style of poetry and her semi-autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her poetry 29 years after her death. While alive, Plath once described her despair as, quote, an owl's talons clenching my heart. This episode is about artistic expression and mental illness.
Hello, and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, before we dive in on this episode, I just wanted to remind everyone that our next episode is the season finale for season four. Finally. I know we actually had our patrons vote on Patreon for the season finale topic. And are you ready to hear what they chose? Drumroll, please. So they chose sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. So I think that's going to be an interesting and kind of intense discussion. So we also had a second place in our vote, and that was the case of Shanda Scherer. And that is going to be the topic of our next Patreon-only episode, which will be dropping after the season finale. We'll actually be putting out some more bonus episodes on Patreon during our season break, and we have some cool Patreon-exclusive Psychology After Dark merchandise on offer. So if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, please do so. Oh, and we'll be joining our patrons for an exclusive live Q&A after the season finale, which I'm really looking forward to, David. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. All right, back to this episode. I wanted to start out by saying that this topic was actually based on a suggestion from our listener, Lisa, who asked us to discuss the link between artists and mental illness. So when I first started thinking about this topic, I thought what I'm guessing a lot of our listeners have thought that, yeah, there really does seem to be a link there. We often hear about the stereotype of the quote-unquote tortured artist, and we can all think of famous examples of artists with some pretty significant mental health problems, such as Van Gogh, Sylvia Plath, or Virginia Woolf. But as I delved deeper into this topic, I started to realize that this is, in fact, a stereotype, and like many stereotypes, is based on more anecdotal evidence than anything else. So that being said, there's been some research studies, and I'm using that term research a little loosely, that have supported this notion that artists are much more likely to be mentally ill. Probably the best known researcher to put forth this view is psychologist Kay Redfield Jameson. In fact, she's published articles and books on the subject and won awards for her groundbreaking research that demonstrated that highly creative people are far more likely to be mentally ill than the rest of us. Except that it turns out that her research had some major flaws. Actually, not just some, but lots of major flaws. But as can sometimes happen, people not looking very critically at her research accepted her findings as fact. And these findings were perpetuated unquestioned for quite some time. So before we get into some of the issues, let's discuss what Jameson's study actually found. Her 1989 study, entitled Mood Disorders and Patterns of Great Creativity in British Writers and Authors, which is probably her most cited work, indicated that artists were 30 times more likely to experience an affective illness which would include things like major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder. And so she's saying 30 times more than the general population. Wow. She also concluded that 12.5% of visual artists were receiving medication for depression, and 50% of poets had affective disorders. Now that sounds pretty profound, wouldn't you say, David? Yeah, I would, I would think so. Now, what if I told you this study was based on only 47 participants, which were hand-selected by Dr. Jameson? That's a pretty small sampling. It really is. 
And then that sample was further broken down into five separate groups, meaning each group she was considering was on average less than 10 participants. So like you said, when we kind of look at it in that light, those results aren't quite so compelling. So David, if you'll recall in our interview with Dr. Richard Nisbet, he talked about errors in reasoning and the importance of understanding statistics. So one of the things that we want to look at when assessing how much stock to put into research is whether or not the sample or the participants were actually representative of the group the researchers were studying. Now, Dr. Jameson said 50% of the poets in her study had affective disorders. But when we know that that only amounted to nine people total, it becomes less meaningful. It's a reach to say that something found in nine individuals is generalizable to the entire population. And as I mentioned, she chose the participants herself. This raises serious concerns about something called selection bias, meaning she may have selected participants who were likely to fit her hypothesis. It also raises concerns about confirmation bias because Jameson, being the only researcher, knew what she was looking for and may have given more weight to the information that supported her hypothesis while dismissing contradictory information. Many times, research is done by teams of people. This creates a situation where there are several sets of critical eyes considering the findings. So David, when you did your dissertation, I remember you had to have like a peer reviewer, right? Yep. And it was for that very reason, to make sure that you weren't looking at your findings with biased lenses, right? Oh yeah, of course. And you had to account for that as part of the methodology of the study as well. In other words, there had to be a very distinct part of the dissertation that deliberately confronted potential for bias and what you were doing specifically. And there are a number of different techniques that people use. And peer reviewer is one of those techniques. What you're doing specifically to avoid bias. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important in research. So additionally, in Jameson's study, there was no control group, meaning she didn't compare artists with non-artists. I mean, how do we know that there aren't other professions where the rates of mental health disorders are similar or even higher? How do we know that the rate she found in this particular group is different from any other group, unless we compare those? In studies where a control group is used, it's also good practice to use researchers to analyze the data who don't know which group participants belong to. So this is called the double-blind study, if you've ever heard of that. Ah, okay. This is another one of those safeguards used to protect against that confirmation bias that we were talking about. And these are just a few problems with this particular study. When we look at some of the other studies that purportedly duplicated Jameson's findings, we find similar selection problems, small sample sizes, and the lack of control groups. And while addressing some of these issues could have improved these studies, it turns out that trying to assess quote-unquote artists for quote-unquote mental illness is much more complicated than it seems at first. So let me explain. David, how would you define an artist? That's a good question. I don't know if there is a specific definition that I have heard that I'm like, oh yeah, that's an artist. So would you ever say that an engineer fits that description? Yeah, definitely. I would say that uh, an engineer, I would say that there's a, a lot of creativity to the work that I do, probably creativity to the work you do as well. Yeah, so I mean, if we kind of think about it, there are a lot of professions that require some level of creativity. 
And what about people who have non-artistic jobs but create art on the side? Would you consider a painter in the same league as a stand-up comic? I think it can be very difficult to identify a common definition of an artist. This could be a very broad term or a very narrow term, depending on who you ask. And when it's hard to define what we're talking about, how can we reliably place people into groups of artists or non-artists? Who's artistic enough, right? Right. We have a similar problem when considering what constitutes a mental illness. Is a single episode of depression the same as chronic schizophrenia? Is a phobia enough to qualify? Does a person have to meet actual DSM diagnostic criteria? Or is it just up to the researcher to decide? Is a history of mental health treatment a defining variable? Or do we just rely on a participant's self-report? Again, it gets very murky, and some of the most widely cited studies linking artists and mental illness either did not define what qualified as a mental illness, or didn't use actual diagnostic criteria, or didn't consider anything other than self-report, or some combination of these issues. We also have the issue of correlation versus causation. Even if someone was reliably able to say there is a link between being an artist and feeling depressed, it doesn't mean the person became an artist because she was depressed. It's possible that being an artist led to depression, related to the stressors associated with that particular job. Things like grueling deadlines, creative blocks, low pay, and public critiques can be very stressful and could certainly contribute to feelings of depression. Or it could be a third unknown variable that influences both depression and artistic ability. Just because two things occur together doesn't mean they're meaningfully related. So David, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this commonly cited study that showed a correlation between ice cream and violence. Do you remember hearing about that? Vaguely, yes, I do. I think you've mentioned it to me before. Yeah, so they showed this correlation between ice cream consumption and violent crime. Now, given these results, some people might say that eating ice cream is a risk for violence. Or that if we just got rid of ice cream, we could reduce violent crime. But in this case, what they found was that there was a third variable that could explain both of these, and that variable was hot weather. The heat made people more likely to eat ice cream, and the heat made people more irritable and therefore more likely to be violent. But ice cream and violence, although correlated, had no meaningful relationship to one another. Okay, so I think I've pretty much beat a dead horse on this one, but these often cited studies are not very good studies. So that begs the question, have there been any well done, meaning particularly valid and reliable studies considering this issue? It just so happens that Dr. Albert Rothenberg, a Harvard professor, spent nearly 30 years studying the mental health of what he called creatives. Now, this was a large-scale study employing a large team of investigators, of which he was the principal investigator. He published his findings in a 1990 article entitled, Creativity and Madness, New Findings and Old Stereotypes. The research team spent over 2,000 hours interviewing more than 1,000 study participants. And what they found was that there was no specific personality type associated with creativity. Additionally, it was noted that while there are superficial similarities between the creative process and psychotic thinking, 
actual psychosis and other forms of mental illness are actually barriers to creativity. And that makes sense. People who are in the midst of significant mental illness, such as a manic episode, severe depression, or acute psychosis, have difficulty with things like motivation, organization, and the like. So I wanted to touch briefly on Dr. Rothenberg's statement about the similarities, even if they are superficial, between creativity and some forms of mental illness. Some have compared the state of flow to that of hypomania. When people are in a state of flow, they are completely enthralled with what they are doing. There is extreme focus, but it doesn't feel effortful. During flow, one is completely present in the activity at hand. It's actually a term associated with positive psychology, and people tend to do their best work when they're in this state. Hypomania, on the other hand, is an attenuated mania, where people can be highly focused, engaged in more goal-directed activities, and show a decreased need for things such as food or sleep. But this is indicative of bipolar 2 disorder, which is a fairly significant mental health disorder. But there's certainly overlap and how these two things present. People can be very efficient and focused during either, but one is considered something to strive for, while the other something to medicate. And I would argue there is a distinction, and that comes down to control. Someone in a state of flow decides when and where to be in that state. It might not always be easy to achieve, or it may not even be possible at certain times. But once the person is in a state of flow, they can decide to exit it whenever it suits them. With hypomania, there is a chemical imbalance that dictates when it occurs. A person experiencing hypomania can't choose to stop it when it no longer suits them. Joseph Campbell, who is a literature professor at Sarah Lawrence College, is quoted as saying, The psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. Now, he was talking about mystics rather than artists, but I think the same argument could be made. Highly creative people have the ability to swim in the waters of psychotic thought or hypomanic energy, but they can withdraw at will. Those with mental illness are drowning in those same waters. All right, so Dr. Rothenberg suggested mental illness is not a prerequisite for creativity, but acknowledged that there are some superficial similarities. He also said that some artists also have mental illness. They're not mutually exclusive. But his study did not find overwhelming evidence of higher rates of mental illness in his study participants. In fact, he found that the trait that was most reliably associated with being a successful artist was motivation. Those who were successful had the desire and dedication to create. So it's just more about consistency. It's more about putting in the effort. Yeah, willpower, if if you will. Fascinating. Okay. All right. But that study was published in 1990. What about more recent research? Well, a Swedish study published in 2011 entitled Creativity and Mental Disorder, a family study of 300,000 people with severe mental disorder, compared people in creative professions which they described as artistic or scientific professions, with a control group. They looked specifically at whether the participants had received inpatient mental health treatment for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or depression between 1973 and 2003. 
What they found was that people who had received treatment for bipolar disorder, as well as the non-mentally ill siblings of people who had been treated for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, were overrepresented in creative professions compared to the control group. While people with bipolar disorder were more likely to be in creative professions, it was actually just a small increase of 8%. So while it was statistically significant, the individuals with bipolar disorder were still only 8% more likely to be in a creative profession than not. Interestingly, people with schizophrenia were actually less likely to hold creative professions than other professions. The same researchers ended up publishing a follow-up study in 2012 entitled Mental Illness, Suicide, and Creativity, a 40-Year Perspective Total Population Study. They examined approximately 1.2 million Swedish people to determine if the trait of creativity was associated with mental disorders in general or just with psychotic mental illness in particular. They also looked at whether authors, in particular, had a higher rate of mental health disorders compared to people in other creative occupations. The mental health disorders they considered as part of this study were schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, schizoaffective disorder, anxiety disorders, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, autism, ADHD, and anorexia. They also considered suicide as a factor. Interestingly, they found that authors had statistically higher rates of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety disorders, substance abuse, and suicide than the other creative professions. But in the larger group of individuals in creative occupations, they found that with the exception of bipolar disorder, which they had already found a link to, those individuals in general were not more likely than controls to have any of the other mental health disorders they considered. They continued to find a link between being a relative of someone with a mental illness and working in a creative profession. One of the possible explanations that has been presented for this is that first-degree relatives of those with schizophrenia who do not have schizophrenia themselves tend to have higher rates of a personality trait called schizotypy. Schizotypy is characterized by things such as having odd beliefs, engaging in magical thinking, having unusual perceptual experiences, and displaying eccentricities of behavior or appearance. These traits are not near as extreme as those found in schizophrenia and don't generally cause significant difficulties in functioning. And if you think about it, you can kind of see how some of these traits are similar to creativity or creative thinking. And people who are more creative in their thinking and interpersonal style may be more drawn towards creative occupations, as it's just a better fit. So again, I think this points more towards the idea that highly creative people can access more psychotic type thinking at will, but they're swimming. They're not drowning. So David, you know, I gave a very technical kind of perspective on this, as I am wont to do. I know that's real shocking to our listeners, right. but you're far more artistic and creative than I am. So I am very interested to hear your take on this particular topic. Yeah, sure. I think that's a matter of opinion. I think creativity comes in all types. And so I don't know about more creative. I think maybe in a very narrow lead defined sort of way. But again, I believe that most professions take some degree of creativity, most likely. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I do think that that's the case. And I think that that's also probably one of the problems with kind of looking at, you know, creativity is that like, what does that mean to be creative? You know, people have to come up with creative solutions to all kinds of problems. And, you know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily say an engineer maybe is the most creative person. But then if you think about their jobs, they may be actually some of the most creative people. So I think you're right. I think it can be hard to say in that people probably have creative abilities in lots of different areas. Yeah. I mean, we think of creativity narrowly defined, you know, people who paint, people who write, people who create music, make music, you know, stuff like that. For this episode, I wanted to start off by talking about some of my own personal experiences with this topic. As I've talked about in the past, my first true love as it pertains to study was writing and literature. Going as far back as high school, I've always wanted to be a writer and still spend a good amount of time writing something, whether it's for this podcast, a fiction project that strikes me at the time, or something academic, as with an article that I'm currently working on. The type of writing is different for each of these projects, but the creative juices, so to speak, need to be there. Anyway, back in college, when I really started to take my writing ambitions seriously, I, of course, made friends with a lot of other aspiring writers and also studied a lot of literature, including the lives of many of the writers I admired the most. And as you might guess, I met some very odd and outlandish characters while studying writing, especially during my time at Naropa University, where the school of writing and literature is rooted in the experimental writing of a school of writers sometimes referred to as the postmoderns the most famous of which would probably be the beat poets such as Jack Kerouac, Ellen Ginsberg, and William Burroughs, but includes many others. And if you know any of the history of these writers, you know that there is some, dare I say, craziness in their stories. There's drug addiction, some very eccentric behavior, and in Burroughs' case, the killing of his wife in Mexico City when drunk and reportedly coming off of other drugs, he shot her while trying to shoot a highball glass off of her head. Oh my. Yeah, crazy story. While that may be the most extreme story, there are a lot of stories, particularly of that group of writers that are eccentric, to say the least. In each of these cases, mental illness has been suspected, if not confirmed. I remember that while studying writing, this cliché of the insane artist, or whatever we might call it, made me begin to wonder if I wasn't crazy enough to actually be a good writer, in the sense, at the time, that I wanted to be. At any rate, I do remember that one of my good friends and former roommates who was also a writer, and a very talented one, had some experience with mental health issues. During college, we used to hang out a great deal. We would write, get drunk, and basically do the stupid things that guys of that age sometimes do. I remember once stealing a bunch of milk crates from behind a grocery store so he could make some drawers for his clothing, and him challenging me to knock over a porta potty at a park just to see if I could hit it hard enough by charging into it. By the way, no one was in it at the time. So what did you... Not exactly. <laughs> okay. I, I just was, I, well, we got into an argument as, as about to whether it was possible or not. I see. Yeah. Anyway, he had also had a very intense number of years when he was a drug addict and engaged in a number of other behaviors that would often put himself in harm's way. In other words, he was kind of that, quote, crazy guy, I guess you would say, and he had some very real scars from those experiences. You know, there's a movie called Wonder Boys that came out in 2000 that starred Michael Douglas, Robert Downey Jr., and Tobey Maguire, and Katie Holmes that kind of nails this idea of just how nutty writers can be. Interesting movie, and when I saw it, it resonated with me due to the sort of chaotic and impulsive life that Douglas's character lives in it, even though he's a respected intellectual. So, during this time in my own life, there did seem to be an element of craziness. 
for lack of a better way to put it, when I was most invested in becoming a writer. After college, this friend and I became roommates, and it was really the first time that I had left home. My parents moved out of state, and I wanted to stay in Denver. So we rented a place together with the intention that we both wanted to apply and go to law school. During this time, I sort of calmed down a bit as I was trying to get a steady job and I was thinking more and more about getting into law school. My friend did too, as he was finishing up his bachelor's degree and working. But it was during this time that I started to notice things about my friend that I hadn't in the past. When you live with someone, you start to see more than you normally would just being their friend and hanging out from time to time. But he would wake me up from his room across the hall with screaming nightmares. He would go through these bouts of exhaustion where he would sit around for two or three days and do nothing but watch TV. He could be moody and often had trouble sleeping. I remember that we would be joking around and he would suddenly, like on a dime suddenly, become intensely serious to the point where I would miss the transition. And this would be interspersed with times when he was a blast to hang out with, like the life of the party and so forth. Anyway, he eventually got tired of this cycle while we were roommates and went to see a doctor who then sent him to a psychiatrist for the first time in his life. He came home that day to tell me that he had been just diagnosed as bipolar 2. Sure enough, he started medication, which knocked out his bouts of exhaustion almost immediately and began to even him out, so to speak, from the hypomanic and depressive episodes that he was having. It seemed like a lot of his past behaviors, from the drug use to the impulsive behaviors, suddenly made sense. So my point here is that starting with the background idea that the best writers are indeed a little crazy, and then having this experience with my writer friend whom I looked up to a great deal, I really began to think that I wasn't crazy enough in the artistic sense to be a truly groundbreaking writer. There was even one time when he told me he thought I was a bit too, quote, even keel to be a writer. I can write well, but there is definitely the idea that permeates all artistic endeavors that to be truly groundbreaking, you have to have some degree of madness. So to be honest, I kind of gave it up. So what's going on here? Well, obviously, and I'm with you on this one, Jessica, as I don't believe that a mental health condition is required for artistic innovation by any stretch. Yet there seems to be some kind of anecdotal correlation. In other words, it just feels like those who are artistic in nature are, well maybe a bit crazy. To bring in another movie reference, I'll harken back to the hard rockin' year of 1995 in the movie Nine Months with uh, Hugh Grant and Julianne Moore, where Grant's character is shocked to find out that his girlfriend is suddenly pregnant. So it's kind of this fish-out-of-water comedy. Anyway, there's another character in the movie played by Jeff Goldblum who is a painter and Hugh Grant's artist buddy. One of the best quotes in the movie is in reference to the idea that, as an artist, he thinks it's a cliché that in order to create good art, you have to be crazy. I think that quote has always stuck with me because this topic has always been fascinating to me, and especially since it really has nothing to do with the plot of the movie, which I probably never would have seen had it not been for the woman I was dating at the time, or what have you. Oh, David, everybody knows you love a good rom-com. Right. <laughs> totally. Especially you. <laughs> right. Anyway... A writer who is also a professor and has published books about the craft of writing is a gentleman named James N. Frey. His How to Write a Damn Good Novel, that's the name of the book, and its successor are a couple of books that I have read in an attempt to crack the code of novel writing. In these books, Frey gives some very nuts and bolts advice about plot, character development, word uses, etc., all of which is very helpful. But he also gives some heartfelt advice on writing as well. In one of his books, he talks about writers and alcoholism and why he feels writers and other artistic types in general can be prone to substance abuse. 
I really like the way Frey described the feeling that alcohol has on the brain as it has this effect where you feel like you're catching a glimpse of inspiration where anything is possible. I know this feeling because I've experienced it. But this is also why it's dangerous and why Frey argues so many writers can fall into this trap. They are searching for this momentary feeling of inspiration that, due to the use of alcohol or other substances, is of course fleeting. Then in order to get the feeling again, we again reach for the substance and, well, we can imagine where that's probably going to lead. This idea of the washed-up alcoholic writer is also a bit of a cliché, I think. So what's going on here then? So going back to my college years, I encountered the concept of the muse in reference to searching for inspiration as it pertained to art. The muse is, of course, the idea that there are goddesses of inspiration for different forms of artistic endeavor. Muses were thought to be the daughters of Zeus and Manasami, the goddess of memory or remembrance. The idea is that, as an artist, there were times when you lived waiting for the muse to come to you in the form of inspiration so you could create art. This is also one of those artistic cliches, so to speak, that, that these flashes of inspiration when the muse finally decided to bless you are what artists live for. The time in between these periods of inspiration are otherwise believed to be the slog of getting through the business of life. In the classic Greek epic poems, there was usually a call to the muses, which signaled that the artists were part of this tradition and seeking the goddess's help with inspiration. This can be seen in the work of Virgil, Hesiod, and Homer, where they invoke the muse and invite her to sing through them. This idea is a basis for analytical psychologist C.G. Jung's concept of the anima, which is the divine feminine side of a man, and is generally responsible for his creative energy and ability to experience joy in life. While the animus is generally dominant in men, it is their connection to the divine feminine that they search for for their entire lives as represented by the search for the Holy Grail in the King Arthur mythology. Generally speaking, men will get a glimpse of the Grail as a young man, then spend their lives building up the energy and wisdom needed to acquire the Grail later on in life. And of course, some men will fail at this, living their lives stuck in Logos-type thinking, devoid of the joy that they truly seek in themselves. So psychologically, we could argue that inviting the muse to speak through an artist is akin to connecting with the divine feminine in all of us, where inspiration and creative energy lives. This means allowing ourselves to experience joy and gratitude as it expresses itself in our everyday lives. We have spoken about the idea of whimsy in past episodes, but the act of being whimsical can be one way to lower your logos guard enough, so to speak, to allow for the muse to enter and inspire your work. This is one of the reasons in my work that I do with men, we try to introduce the divine feminine into treatment in different ways, but mostly through getting men into what we call process, or the ability to acknowledge, communicate, and understand their feelings in real time, which is something that is typically thought to be something that women have a much easier time doing than men. This is again owed to the idea that in men, the animus is slightly more dominant than the anima. This isn't true for all men, of course, but the idea is, I believe, what I would call a, quote, orienting generalization or a reference point from which we can start the conversation. So it makes perfect sense to me that muses are described as women in Greek literature. This is the personification of inspiration by the connection to a person's divine feminine side, where we allow ourselves to see the childlike wonder of the world and to dream of the possibilities. Incidentally, this idea was much more akin to the idea of artistic madness as the ancient Greeks meant it, rather than the mental health definition that we describe today. 
Another quick example of something most people have some experience with that is a lot like this kind of phenomena is when we fall in love with someone. There are a lot of different chemical reactions that are happening when we first fall in love with someone that can be like being intoxicated and, not to put too fine a point on it, makes us a bit crazy. But the idea in the non-pathological sense is the same. We have increased energy, we start to see amazing potentials, we crave being around the person we're in love with and we feel inspired and often have a new zest for life when we are. Like inspiration, however, this period of time is fleeting. It generally only lasts between one or two years after which the relationship evolves into something much more sustainable. But some people become fixated on the idea of being in love and the feeling that accompanies it. In my experience, it is the pursuit of this feeling that makes people a bit crazy. As an artist, there can be extreme pressure to be groundbreaking or especially creative, whereas others may not feel this. You can double this pressure with those artists who have already been successful in the past and are being pressured to create the next thing, hence the expression, quote, lightning striking twice, as if the creation of this kind of art is up to the muse deciding to visit the artist and not the artist themselves. And I've seen people do some odd and dangerous things trying to invite this feeling of inspiration into their lives so that they may be creative. And that's what I think contributes to this idea of artistic madness. One of the points raised in the research that we did for this episode was that artists crave meaning in the work they do. When they don't have this, they are prone to a type of existential depression that ushers them through a creative winter, so to speak, until the spring, when the muse visits and they feel that the work they're creating again has meaning for them. That period of desolation, however, is how many artists feel they actually need to suffer for their art. So Jessica, do you remember the Soup Nazi episode of Seinfeld? How could I forget it? It's one of my favorites. Okay then, it's probably one of most people's favorites. It's, it's a classic episode. There's the scene when Kramer is talking to the Soup Nazi about suffering for his art, which is of course making soup, which is why Soup Nazi is so difficult to get along with. And of course the Soup Nazi praises Kramer as being the only person who really understands him. And I think that a lot of artists kind of feel this way, that there is a certain degree of suffering that must be acknowledged and deeply felt to create the kind of art they most want to produce, art that is meaningful to them, and hopefully to others as well. Now, each artist may do this in a different way, but I think most would acknowledge those barren times when the fields are not producing, but must be left to lay fallow for a while. This can also be a time of rest and regeneration. For me, however, this is just the adulting part of creating art, so to speak, the work of it. Famous artist Chuck Close once said that, quote, inspiration is for amateurs, the rest of us show up every day and get to work. I had an old writing professor that once said essentially the same thing. He said, don't rely on inspiration, inspiration comes and goes, willpower gets the piece done. Even James Frey, the professor and author I mentioned earlier, drew an example of a bricklayer showing up to work one day and freezing up. Then his boss sends him home because the bricklayer has, quote, bricklayer's block. Obviously, this never happens as a bricklayer just shows up and, well, gets to work. Frey used this example as a way to point out how the idea of inspiration in art can be a bit ridiculous. And let's face it, adulting sucks. It's the boring work that's necessary to get on with the business of life and for me, why it's so difficult to sit down and actually write. Writing, like all art, I would argue, takes a great deal of time and the cultivation of a very specific set of skills. 
This isn't an easy path for anyone, and so suffering for your art can be excruciating at times, especially when you're not receiving any appreciation or recognition or reward for the work you are doing. And that could lead anyone to become depressed, or a bit crazy, for a while at least, I would argue. One last point and then I'll let it rest, but I did want to acknowledge how those with mental illnesses can be attracted to artistic expression as a way of helping to manage them. As I've mentioned many times in the past, artists like H.R. Geiger and the writer Elizabeth Wurzel, who was widely considered to be the voice of Gen X and who wrote the book Prozac Nation about her own struggle with depression and mental illness in 1994, the movie of which starred Christina Ricci. Again, we have artistic expression being used to help manage these kinds of mental issues, which can be an incredibly effective form of therapy. So this is known as art therapy, and there were a number of people at Naropa studying to be art therapists. We even used art therapists when both you and I worked with kids. Remember that, Jessica? Yeah, it was really interesting because it's, it's really like out of the realm of what I do, but I, I really see the value in it, and I think that it, it can be very meaningful to people. Uh, Sure. I know a number of therapists who employ some form of art therapy, whether it be painting to get some kind of non-verbal or symbolic expression, to journaling and getting thoughts and feelings down on paper. Years ago, a woman I worked with who was also a writer and a bit older and wiser than me once said something that always stuck with me. She said that there are people who write well and write when they need to, but that the best writers have to write. It's almost as if there was some kind of inspiration that was barely containable inside of them, and that it became a compulsion for them to express this in writing. A compulsion like this sounds like it could be a bit like madness in some way, shape, or form, at least to me. And maybe this kind of artistic craziness is the gift and the price some people pay for being gifted in this way. You know, David, that's really interesting to think about all of those aspects of it. And, you know, when I was researching this topic, I was reading about kind of the um, the idea of the muse and that when Greeks talked about creativity coming from madness, it wasn't in reference to the mental health piece that we kind of see it today. Um, so that was really interesting. Well, I think it could be a, a form of craziness, like, a, you know, people who are just a little bit crazy, maybe. But definitely not in a way that we would pathologize it today. You know, there used to be a time when we didn't rush to pathologize all eccentricities as a mental illness. And I think that was probably the biggest difference is that they didn't have a science, you know, the way we do that sort of says, okay, when a person acts in a certain way, this is a mental illness versus this is just somebody who's kind of kooky and eccentric, but who's also very creative. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good point. And I I think it just really kind of, you know, just listening to you talk, it points out or it draws attention to this idea that there are, are all of these emotions that go on um, throughout a, pe- a person's career, whether it's in the arts or in another field. I mean, I love psychology. I, I live it. I breathe it. I dream about it. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about psychology. Right. So, you know, there have certainly been times where I've felt almost a compulsion to like study it or talk about it or write about it. And other times it's like the last thing that I want to talk about, right? But at the end of the day, I'm a psychologist. And so that adulting comes into play and it's like whether or not I want to be a psychologist that day, I have to do it. Um, It also made me kind of think about this podcast. And, you know, I think that it's kind of interesting reflecting back at the end of a season. I feel like at the beginning of a season, we are always incredibly motivated. We feel so inspired. We have this big list of topics that we're going to talk about. 
And inevitably, we always start out kind of ahead. So, you know, we work ahead on our episodes. So they're done like well before we post them. And this funny thing happens that by the end of the season, we're like kind of slogging through it. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of podcasts end up falling out or falling off because people lose that inspiration, that feeling of inspiration, I should say. Right. And at some point, it's like you just have to sit down and do the work. And, you know, I I hope that every episode that we put together comes across as being very inspired. And I do think that we always do find that inspiration, but certainly there are times when it's much easier than other times. I agree. You know, I completely agree. Yeah, at least that's my that's my feeling on it. So a lot of what you were talking about, I could relate to, you know, even though I don't necessarily consider myself an artist or a highly creative person, um, I think that a lot of what you talked about was very relatable. Anyway, I'm going to stop babbling and we're going to wrap <laughs> this episode up. Um, it was definitely an interesting topic and it's really made me think about a lot of things. So thank you, Lisa, for the suggestion. And we'll have links to some of what we discussed in this episode on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also send us your episode ideas from there as well. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And please feel free to send us messages there as well. And with that, David, we should probably get going because we have a lot of work to do on our season four finale. Yes, we do. All right, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus both provided by Gemendo.